Hey there, if you would like ad-free and early versions of these episodes, as well as bonus episodes, movie club episodes, and lots more, head on over to patreon.com slash Craig and Friends. Well, let me formally welcome you to Craig and Friends, author of Deep Sniff, Adam Smith. It's nice that it rhymes, too. Yeah, it is. And some people get um, confused. They mix them up. Oh, so Adam Sniff and Deep Smith? Adam Smith, Deep Smith, Deep Smith. (laughs) (laughs) Although, I mean, one, if wanted to give you a nickname, Adam Sniff wouldn't be uh, too far off the mark given your proclivities. Yes, I'm a sniffer. <laughs> and a proud sniffer, which is a, right. a nice thing to see. And you address that in the book. And of course, the book Deep Sniff is about poppers, the history of poppers, and uh, all of the attendant uh, lifestyle practices one participates in while enjoying them. You're talking about fucking. Well, yes, but you do mention the dance floor. <laughs> and the dance floor. Let's get into your first experience with poppers. I mean, you obviously yes. get into it in the book, but I think it's a good place to start. Well, actually, my first, the first time I remember encountering poppers was in a threesome. And uh, it was, I, I, I turned up to a hookup with someone that I'd hooked up with before. And then he invited someone else over and they were sniffing poppers. And I hadn't done, I hadn't sniffed poppers before. I didn't know what it was. And so I didn't actually sniff. I was already pretty well stimulated by the fact that there was a threesome happening. Sure. Which was unplanned. Um, So that was nice. And then I, um, and then I just, you know, like looked into it and um, like learned about it probably by myself online and bought some and then tried some by myself and um but i i don't i so i don't remember the exact what happened the first time i did it it would it would have been by myself but then i do remember the first time which wouldn't have been too much too too much later actually when i when i really like felt the the power of poppers and the potency of poppers and it was a new year's eve and i was by myself at home uh looking at porn and wanking and i sniffed poppers and i found popper beta videos and i just had a great time and i was like wow this is really really good and from then on it's been a part of my life obviously we're talking very frankly and openly about some things in here that you in the book mention that even the notion of being gay or Mm. being considered gay or saying you're gay etc was quite a bit of a hurdle around what era would that be well, actually, I mean, I'm 36 now, and until I was 29, I didn't uh, have sex with anyone and didn't uh, really come out to myself and come out, certainly not come out to anyone else um, to tell them, or even not even to come out, but just to tell them, like, what porn I was looking at or what I fancied, you know? Sure. So I was, um, I was only really having sex with myself for, for, for a long time. And, you know, and there are lots of reasons why, that is uh which we can go into if you want and well, well yeah um, let's get I, a let's get a little sense of <laughs> of, uh, of why well i guess when i was a teenager i was looking at different kinds of porn and looking at different kind of you know magazine pictures and um it was different genders and different bodies but i definitely fancied the men more mm-hmm. and um so that was just 
that was just gradual, really. I was just spending more and more time looking at those pictures and thinking of that and yeah. less and less time looking at other kinds of bodies. Sure. Um, sure. And I guess I, I felt, I always felt like when I was growing up that, um, that, that I knew what gay was and it was um, not really a very positive thing. It wasn't really well represented. It, it wasn't very broadly represented. There were quite narrow views of what being gay is, which was like, you know, hedonistic uh, and um, slutty, and now I am both of those things. But <laughs> well, we, we, then we figure out that that's good. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but I, I just felt like they were bad, and um, and also I didn't like the idea of being categorized really because I felt like you know, unlike if you're straight or if you're if you're if you don't come out, if then you're assumed to be straight slash assumed to not have a sexuality in a way, and so I didn't like the idea of like declaring what I was and like actually doing what I was because that would then you know give other people reasons to categorize me and and to perceive me in certain ways and and obviously that is also an an inner homophobia um but uh, it just wasn't a very positive conducive environment I think to me exploring my sexuality or being even honest with myself um privately and that's to do with you know, growing up in the 90s in Britain, in a pretty conservative household, socially, uh, which I didn't realise at the time. I thought my parents were fairly liberal, but um, I, I think they were fairly conservative. And when my sister came out uh, first, uh, I real, I, we realised how, specifically, how conservative they were. And so that was another factor as well, that that hadn't gone well for her. And so I think that that contributed to me not you know, not letting other people into what was going on for me for for quite a long time. Around what age were you when she came out? I was 18 and she was 21. How long did it take for your parents to come around to the notion of her being gay? Um, I guess, I don't know, really. I guess um, the big change happened about nine years, after about nine years, when they did finally meet her partner and um, visit her house. Uh, they, they was, we were all still in each other's lives, but um, my, for example, at Christmas time, my sister would um, have to choose whether she spent it with her partner or whether she came and visited mom and dad because mom and dad didn't want to know her partner or see that side of her life or visit her house. So um, that thawed after nine years and things started to change then so it was a long time but does kind of match up with your arriving at the ability to uh, come out which is no easy feat then you very got very interested in being (laughs) being uh, who you are which is a benefit i think of late stage realization yeah i think that's right it's something that you well i think as well i think it's a benefit I mean, the longer the longer you live, you know, the more experiences you accumulate, the more relationships and connections you form or deform, and all of those things. And the more you learn about how people are, and the more you learn about yourself, and all of those, all of having all of those things are are a good foundation for exploring um, sex and sexuality and gender expression as well to some degree. Mm-hmm. So I think that that was definitely my, that was definitely my story. Um, and the thing is that specifically for me as well as 
just having the benefit of experience and age and things like that. I also, because of what I was reading and what I was watching and what I was actually studying as well, and the people around me, you know, I I, I knew, I, I, I was reading a lot and talking a lot about sexuality and sex, sexual politics and gender politics especially. You know, I was in a feminist book group for for, I don't know, at least six years before I came out as as gay. And that was predominantly women. And we were talking about the patriarchy and gender and sex right. and all of those things. And and prior to that, I had studied, I'd done some cultural studies and media studies and English literature, which is full of sex and sexuality. <laughs> so I kind of, I, I had this, that, that extra accumulation in a way of like thinking about all of that. And actually the first person that I had sex with was really quite shocked at how easy I I, I was <laughs> in, in in the sense of like how easy it was for me to take all of my clothes off and and um and get involved and I think it was because I'd basically done a lot of the theory of what this was and I don't mean the theory like in terms of like um how to have sex I mean well in terms of mechanics I mean the theory in terms of like how bodies relate to each other and how you can feel and how your body is your body and it's and it's and it's fine and you own it and no one else owns it and you can express it how you want to express it as long as you're not harming anyone else well, that kind of theory you know the sure. theory of sexual politics and gender politics I'd understood that so then actually putting that into practice was obviously a revolution for me in my cells but also a fairly natural and easy thing it seemed to do. And that was really wonderful, actually. Did this gentleman happen to have that attitude of like, oh, it's your first time, that, that kind of thing? No, I mean, he, he was aware. He, yeah. he knew. In, and in many ways, you know, I was more sexually experienced by that point than he was in terms of um, me having had sex with myself and had lots of different kinds of sex with myself that he had not. So, um, and also I don't think he fetishized, you know, the the idea of me, it being my first time with another person or anything. The thing about that and about every, every kind of moment of sex that you can have with someone is um, like, don't place the pressure on it, on yourself and on the other person and don't allow that pressure into the room. What under, under, like, however you might be, um, whatever the reason for that pressure, like it's your first time or it's the first time we've seen each other in a long time or it's or it's a makeup or a breakup or like whatever, like the pressure is it's just some thing that we impose on sex and it um, in a weird category and it doesn't need to be like that. I agree with you. Yeah, and that goes really for all social interactions too, particularly that is noticeable now when there is this kind of, uh, there's, the recovery from the distance of actual social interaction now when you do realize that you are gay or queer or or whatever it is you realize right yeah you realize like you said that you'd been reading all of this stuff you've been doing research intense studies uh you know you're like bathed in certain culture and and stuff and then you're like oh yeah okay that's the bit there was the other thing i just didn't quite acknowledge yeah yeah exactly and then and I and I so I think that that has really um, it really revolutionised how I think about my body, and it really it's it's more than it's more than just my body. It did have an impact on how I relate to people, to other people, and their bodies, and also just generally, like emotionally, like it felt it made me more connected to my body, and that's something that I wanted to write in Deep Sniff because 
the thing about poppers is that you, um, it, in some ways it makes you, like a lot of drugs, I suppose, it makes you more aware of your body in certain ways. Yeah. Um, and it makes you experience your body in, in different ways than what you would normally be able to experience it. So, um, so I think that that was really a, a big part of my, uh, uh, um, I suppose, first experience of poppers was just that, that it took... I was already having quite novel experiences with my body and then suddenly here's a whole other one and also connected to those other things because if emotionally I was a bit more withdrawn for example in not letting people into parts of my life then um, if I physically let people into my life that taught me that I could do that emotionally as well and so these things are completely connected. I know that I'm talking about them as separate things, but I, I'm trying to create the picture that they're all connected. And sometimes there's like poppers. You, you absolutely are. And I couldn't agree with you more yeah. because I think uh, my realization that I'm queer had a radical impact on my overall life in the way yeah. I relate with people, the way I do everything. And it's something that like, I really feel sorry for straight people about because they don't go <laughs> through that revolution, you know? Sure. Um, that that personal revolution like I mean to the extent that there is such a thing as a straight person by the way um I mean I don't really know what it means but you know the people you might call you might by saying straight people what I might be talking about is people who don't go through a process of opening themselves up sexually sure and a straight but straight but you know a heterosexual person um might do that in a in a full way and explore certain things that are good for them in, in in ways that are quite surprising or something and they might still be heterosexual but they've gone through a revolution in in the in the in the bridge between their their body and their mind and you know through sex and and that's wonderful so i think a lot of people just don't go through that and um and yeah that's sad <laughs> to shift gears a little bit to talk about the era when the raids were happening and all of that and yeah. sort of how yeah. poppers are criminalized in a way not fully yeah. but there yeah. is a bias against them and a sort of uh, a taboo still and yeah. how that relates to the early 80s right well in the in the in the US and the UK which are the two countries that I mainly uh, tell stories from in the book roughly from about the um roughly from about the 60s, but certainly by the middle of the 70s, um, uh, poppers were, and the substances that we call poppers, have been basically permitted in, in society by the state, but not fully. They're not fully controlled either, but they're, um, and they're not regulated as products, but they are somewhat permitted by the state. And we can go into that legal situation, but basically, certainly since the 70s until today, in the US and the UK, they are permitted. Um, and yet there have been uh, phases during those times when they've uh, come under greater scrutiny from mm -hmm. the from the lawmakers or from the media uh, or from um, doctors and clinicians, uh, which has kind of called into question their, their status in this sort of like no person's legal land in a way. And so in, in the UK, what happened was, well, actually, no, I mean, um, in, in the UK and the US, when the AIDS crisis was gathering pace in the early 80s and the mid 80s, poppers were one of the correlative factors, you know, in, in, in so many deaths. And it was only a correlation. But if you imagine, if you, have, you know, many people listening will be, will be able to remember that 
period where we didn't know what was going on and what was causing this problem and how awful it was and why was it only affecting largely this category of people, you know, men who had sex with men. And so we didn't know a lot of that. And there was a correlation. A lot of those people who were getting sick used poppers. And so, you know, it was a, uh, an obvious culprit to put to point the finger to certainly before we knew the the existence of the virus but then also even since they discovered the virus campaigners were still making the correlation and still calling for gay men to stop using poppers um and so you had this you had that tiny piece of um uh, panic maybe justifiable panic within a bigger panic which was the hiv crisis in total and how governments like the uk's and the us's were just not addressing this, not handling this. Um, And then, you know, the press, certainly in the UK, like the tabloid press really whipping up storms and hostility towards gay people. You know, finally, those people that um, wanted a reason to to push back against the increasing freedom that gay people had been experiencing and pushing for. Finally, they had a reason because they could point to this thing and say, well, you know, this is this is this is um, this is the thing that needs to push you back because look at what it's doing to you. Um, so all of those, all of that, and then all that moralizing, everything like that. So by the mid to late eighties in the UK, you know the tabloids were at fever pitch about this, and a lot of journalists were seeking out any any way that they could possibly attack, find ways of doing stories that would attack the gay community and people living with HIV and stuff, and so. Um, they did a story about the availability of poppers, uh, which was obviously branded as like a sex drug and a sex craze by um, uh, uh, the availability of, of poppers in in pubs in London, in gay pubs. And so there was a story about that uh, in one of the big Sunday newspapers. And then um, very shortly after that, the police in London uh, raided a the, the most famous gay um, pub that sold poppers, the Royal Vauxhall Tavern. And it's still one of the most famous gay pubs and one of the most important gay pubs today. And they, they raided and they seized poppers from behind the bar, which were lawfully for sale. And they arrested people and they said that they were investigating drunkenness, but they hadn't had any complaints about that. And then for years, the landlord and landlady and some of the bar staff of the pub were embroiled in this uh, legal case, uh, which was delayed and delayed um, over whether they were selling poisons or not. Drunkenness is a rare thing in the UK. So <laughs> I can understand how they could be concerned about that. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're all very, we're a very sober <laughs> Uh, group of people. Yeah, most of the pubs, there's a lot of tea drinking going on. Folks who haven't been to the UK might not know that, so I wanted to impart right. that knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> but also, you, you describe in great detail the raids and how they, uh, they meaning the police, uh, were wearing rubber gloves, and there was a very specific right. attitude with which the patrons were treated. Yeah. So there were two raids that happened in the Royal Vauxhall Tavern. One was in the December 1986, and that was when the poppers were seized. And the second raid happened in the following month, January 1987, and that was when the police wore these rubber gloves. And actually, the number of police was a lot bigger on that second raid. And uh, the um, the obviously the, the punters in the pub were uh, were handled by the by the police. You know, as the police went in to raid the pub to to investigate drunkenness <laughs> and 
the licensing of the pub and these things. And it was all very, it was all, it's obviously spurious reasoning. And the, and the, and the punters knew why the police were wearing gloves. The US police had been doing it also uh, when they were policing marches on Washington to protest against the government's inaction on HIV AIDS. The police had worn these rubber gloves. And the police here in the UK, in London, when they wore these rubber gloves, the surgical gloves, really, when they wore them to raid the Royal Vauxhall Tavern, they said afterwards that, well, we know that some police have been um, harmed, but, you know, they've been pricked by, by needles in pockets when they've done searches on people um, and they've been they've contracted H, uh, HIV and hepatitis B uh, from being pricked when they've searched people who are carrying you know needles that they use for drugs and it's which is a completely facetious spurious reasoning because a surgical latex glove does not protect no. you from a needle prick <laughs> it does not so no. they're like they're not just like insulting but they're also stupid they're going to lie and just say some bullshit thing. It doesn't matter because yeah. whatever we say, yeah. that's what goes. And yeah. uh, you folks aren't really full people. Yeah. You're like 85% people, but not really people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's horrendous. You make a, a, a nice contrast in the book where you talk about the police now wearing rainbow badges and being mm. parts of the pride parades, even though a lot of people do have issues with police being mm. in the pride parades, but it does show a rem remarkable change of attitude in a relatively mm. short period of time. Yeah. Uh, to go back to the heyday, let's say of, uh, of poppers and the heyday of, um, clone culture. Yeah. You uh, talk about the Leatherman's handbook. Yeah. Which is uh, quite fascinating to think about the pre-internet age. Yeah, and also the pre-HIV AIDS age. I mean, I think that, you know, I'm 36 and um, I think that people of my generation um, and younger and also, well, I, any any generation, I think that a lot of us um, who might call ourselves gay men and also broadly other queer people, um, you know, are kind of obsessed with the 1970s. Oh, you know? I am, for sure. Um, yeah, and, and like... And on the one hand, I think sometimes we can be a bit nostalgic about it because, mm -hmm. you know, it wasn't all parties and orgies and it wasn't all easy, especially if you were poor or not white or all yeah. of the, you know, it, all of those things, as well as being gay. I mean, it wasn't, you know, even though it was a time of much more freedom for, for gay people, um, especially as then the movement was, you know, gay men and lesbians. Um, you know, it was it was not easy easier for ev easy for everybody, but it was certainly easier generally than it had been before 1969 in the US with the Stonewall uprising, and 1967 in the UK, which was a huge legal shift because we had the partial decriminalization of homosexuality. So going into the 70s, um, you know, and this wave of activism, the Gay Liberation Front, active here in the UK in the early 70s, really, really making huge gains and setting up organizations and networks and gay newspapers and gay bookshops and all of these, that, and, and obviously the nightlife, like blooming, um, blooming yeah. and booming. Yeah. Um, all of those things. <laughs> and poppers were a huge part of that because, yeah, the, the nightlife, the sex life, and also in the US, um, you know, thank you, America, the, the branding and the commodification of this product, which had previously been a quite obscure medical uh, relief for angina pain, the branding and commodification of that into a product which was made and marketed to a, a, a specific demographic, which was the gay men who were amassing in cities like New York and San Francisco. 
Um, and, you know, the UK, UK companies were not as uh, capitalistic or commercially minded as the US ones. And they, you know, the US ones are the ones that made the big poppers companies and they, they were formed in the 1970s in that period. And so, and of course, what were they going to use to advertise poppers? But uh, words like potency and power and pictures of these hunky guys with these giant pecs and, you know, 18 abs per person, um, you know, because that, that was desirable. That was what many men wanted to be. And that was what many men wanted to possess and what many men wanted to fuck. So they used those images in their, um, in the adverts for poppers uh, and, you know, those adverts ran in the gay newspapers and the gay magazines. And so that was one of the things that supported those those publications financially was was advertising poppers. Um, and so I just think it's a really interesting moment to think about how poppers, both at the commercial level and at the sort of cultural level, um, are implicated in that hot moment of the 1970s when you've got this amazing combination of population density for gay people, uh, you know, slightly more rights and slightly more visibility and and uh, and acceptance um and probably a lot more fucking happening so uh, poppers are completely a part of that moment the images used as the ideal there wasn't really as much acceptance you know given that we do have this nostalgia sometimes you know things were out of fashion like a more feminine gay man or yeah what have you and it became yeah. this sort of ideal this sort of um i guess set in stone image of what was and was yeah. not desirable yeah yeah i mean i think that I, I think about that because you know you can create a counterfactual or a sort of counter history can't you by thinking you know if if there were certain ideas of what being a man like was uh, both physically and i guess socially like what your position in society was and there were certain ideas of of that you know like being strong and being stable and being solvent and and uh, having a good job and um maybe being um violent but in a just way you know like yeah, you know sure. in the military or whatever like all those ideas of being a man and um and I, and on the one hand like being queer is is the wonderful condition um that that allows us to subvert all of those th those norms and in many ways people in the 70s did subvert those norms that i just mentioned by like being all of those things but also having bum sex for example that's a huge subversion of that and of course lots of people were just like well i'm not like that i'm more swishy or i'm more you know i wear flowers in my hair or whatever and that's great and and it just feels like there, there was this there was this moment where almost like a fork in the road where, you know, where, where what a man could be, uh, you know, went down either both of those four, you know, you know, you had the division of like, okay, well, actually, so there are some gay men who, who, who did then continue to do um, show there are alternative ways of being a man and, you know, fuck you with your ideas or your stereotypes or your expectations. Yeah. And there are others who continue down that path and like believe, and we, maybe we all do to some degree, because we're all swimming in the soup, you know, we're all swimming in the same soup of like, oh, you know, no, I have to be this, I have to be dependable, or I have to have a certain body. I can't show or, certain emotions or I can't express yeah. this certain aspect of my, yeah. Yeah. And I just, and I think that, I think about that a lot about the way that basically gay people and queer people generally like, as long as we've been visible and, 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 and active and 
um, and showing our showing our best selves in different ways. We've always subverted those stereotypes and we've shown alternative ways of living. And that's our that's our offer, you know, to, to, to the world. Um, not that we owe it the world anything, but that's our offer. And I think that's wonderful. But at the same time as well, we're also subject to those some standard expectations and we're replicating those as well. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And now a special word from... Hi, Divas. It's me, Rubber Child. And if you want to, I would appreciate it if you could check out the link in the description box down there a little bit lower for my GoFundMe for my medical transition. I would really appreciate it. And even if you can't, a little share is free. A little like is free. And I appreciate it. And I love you all. Mm. Mm. And don't you want to return that love? So that's right. Just take those fingers and go down just a little bit further and uh, and <laughs> press right where you know where you should. <laughs> oh, see? You, you already feel the difference. Now, mm-hmm. donate and share. Do both. If you can't donate, just share. Okay. The leather scene, was that something that was particularly of interest to you as a participant or as a researcher? More like a researcher. Um, I'm not really into leather. I, um, yeah, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm on the leather scene. I mean, I can look at pictures of people and think it's sexy or videos or see people in real life or whatever, but it's just not, I'm not a part of that subculture which continues today. It's, it's amazing. It's incredible. Um, although there's, and there are even broader things now, you know, there's rubber and lycra um, uh, folks who uh, sort of are like an offshoot of the leather community in a way. And it'd be interesting to see how that shifts as more and more. Uh, well, we'll see. Um, yeah. But I, I guess I just, I noticed that poppers came up in connected to the leather scene in London and New York, just because you know, so much of the sex scene was also like the leather scene, basically, in the in those places. And so obviously poppers were present and also be, there was the advertising. Yes, and, you know, and right. Like leather guys were in the advertising quite a lot. So I went to the Leatherman's Handbook, which was written by um, Larry Townsend in 1972, I think. Um, and that was like the first time that someone had like written down and published like a full uh, sort of, I don't know, like a codified way of, yeah, like codified thing. Like here's what the, you know, there is this thing called the leather community and here are its codes and this is what it's about. And this is where they meet. And this is what it means to these people. Like it was a really great piece of work. And I wanted to see if poppers were in there and they were, you know, they were. So, you know, if we think about famous parts of the leather community, famous codes, like the leather itself and things like the hanky code, the handkerchief code and, um, uh, you know, and some of the terminology of like, you know, um, S&M and stuff like that, you know, all of those things are quite famous, but actually poppers were there as well. Uh, he called them sniffs or amyl after amyl nitrite, which was the substance at the time. And um, poppers were very much a part of that scene. And that was just not something that is, is as famous as things like the hanky code. So that was just interesting to me as a researcher in writing the book. 
was to find that as well and to again see poppers at this really interesting moment as part of this bigger tapestry just like with the raids of the pub and the hiv crisis you yeah know, we know about the hiv crisis we know that tapestry but did you also know there's this interesting little story of poppers involved in that and similarly with the leather community you know we know that it's a very visible community wonderful thing but did you also know that poppers were there and isn't that a fun thing to to follow the that you know this vapor is it as yeah. it flows through our <laughs> Exactly. Uh, well, it's also one of the many great reasons people should check this book out because I don't think that there has been uh, any kind of exhaustive study of poppers in the culture. No. And that's what a lot of people say to me like, have you, you've literally written a book about poppers. Like, that's crazy. Why did you do that? Or how did you do that? Or is the book? And my, like, thought, my yeah. thought was, oh, my God, at last. Oh, great. Brilliant. (laughs) I'm I'm glad to provide for you. Something you mentioned a minute ago is of particular interest to me. You said, you know, it was called sniffs, but mainly back then when it was amyl nitrate. Yeah. Now, can you just go through a bit of the history of how the actual substances in poppers have changed over the years and maybe not for the better? Well, the first substance is amyl nitrite. Uh, and it was synthesized in 1844 by a French chemist who didn't really have a use for it, but know that it made him blush. And then a doctor. <laughs> we like in, those things. Anything you know? Anything. Right. Exactly. I mean, he wasn't that. He wasn't that into it, to be honest. Um, well, at least not according to his writings. <laughs> uh, and then um, a couple of decades later, in 1867, a, a doctor who had been reading some of the research into the substance that it seemed to make people's blood vessels dilate. Yeah, he was a doctor um, called Thomas Ladderbrunton was looking for a way to dilate the blood vessels of his angina patients because he knew that the pain was caused when not enough blood was getting to their heart. So if you could dilate the blood vessels, the more blood could flow. So he tried amyl nitrite on a patient that was suffering with angina pain and it worked. And so he wrote about that in a paper and published it and began to popularize the sniffing of amyl nitrite as a relief from angina pain. And then it was also codified by like pharmacists and other doctors to be useful for other things like seasickness and period pain. Um, And then it was manufactured as a pharmaceutical product by a big pharma company and sold um, and on that basis. And so that was how it was for decades and decades and decades. And then um, in the sixties and seventies, when the state, both in the UK and the US started to pay a bit more attention because they noticed that, basically people who were not unwell were getting hold of this in a perfectly lawful way by just walking into a pharmacy and buying it from the pharmacist and then going home and sniffing it and having bum sex. So the state was worried about improper use in one way or another. And so it started to do things like require prescriptions or look into whether the substance should be banned. So of course, then poppers manufacture, well, the company started to manufacture it as poppers and market it as poppers uh, for gay sex, basically. And so they also started to tweak the the formula and started to look at other substances that could be that could be used in case the law banned amyl nitrite. And then you have a substitute. Sure. And so, um, and I think the big shift on that happened in in the late eighties and the early nineties when butyl nitrite became uh, um, the, one of the main substances. Um, and then 
more recently we've seen pentyl nitrite and propyl nitrite um you know and they're all versions of the same thing really but different people have different experiences of them that's true and now there's you know legendary tales of classic old school poppers you know like john waters has a freezer full of the good ones like the old school ones apparently through your research did you ever get to enjoy the uh the benefits of uh, accessing like any of those? Water's house and, and like if you have, that'd be a great story to share. But I feel like that would have that would have been in the I book. Led with that story. I, yeah, I feel like it would have been at least in the forward. But have you ever had a chance to have quote unquote classic poppers or the old school amyl nitrate? No, I have not. I mean, this is the this is the thing. I mean, it, it, I, well, I'm saying no, I have not. But I also I have used amyl nitrite um, as you know, which is a which is a, a which is manufactured in France as poppers, and there are some brands from France that um, and they they are amyl nitrite. So I've had amyl nitrite, oh. and it's like any chemical substance. You know, that is a that is the substance. That's what it is. And the thing is, because of the weird legal status, you don't know exactly what's in the bottle, and often they don't. They you know they don't they're not forthcoming the manufacturers with what's actually in the bottle always. And so you don't know whether it's just purely that substance or whether there are other things in there. Because also some of them clearly have other things that make things smell in certain ways. Sure. Um, you know, pumpkin spice latte is the uh, is the is the flavor of the moment because we're talking now in the autumn, and there's a company that make a PSL poppers. Um, but so so you don't really know exactly what's going in. But certainly I've sniffed amyl nitrite. It might not be pure amyl nitrite. It might have other things in, um, and I like that actually. But I don't know. And I and I I'm a bit skeptical of these stories of like, oh, you know, the pure 1970s stuff, or or it was better. It was better back then, or now it's all diluted or whatever. Because I think that I think that there's a. I feel that there's probably a nostalgia at play there, and I feel that there's. I think that um, there's basically a lot of this is just to do with marketing you know like a chemical substance is a chemical substance Mm. you know i don't know why anyone is and you know here you can walk into a pharmacy and buy paracetamol for 16p you know like 16 cents like a whole box of paracetamol for 16 cents but like it's paracetamol like that's a chemical substance it's paracetamol you do not need to spend five dollars on a box of paracetamol because it's money it's that you can get the cheapest paracetamol because it's paracetamol yeah and so and i think there's something like that going on with poppers like if it's amyl nitrite it's amyl nitrite or if it's butyl nitrite that's what it is yeah um and and the branding is where really where they can compete you know with the names or the labels and the colors and the advertising that's where they that's where they're really differentiated now i think also my my curiosity is about well, two things. A, thanks for letting me know that they have that in France because now I can make a. I want to get some of that. But um, the uh, popper's blindness problem that you noted yeah. in there, I yeah. had been under the impression that that had been caused by the new combination yeah. of chemicals that were being used in place of what the quote classic combo would be. Yeah. So there is. So yeah, there was one. There's one study that I'm familiar with and it basically the, the headline here is that more research is needed absolutely right because from what i've seen so far it's all fairly inconclusive basically it's people who have it's small groups of people who have presented to um hospitals with an eye problem um after sniffing poppers often quite heavily or often after doing it for quite a long time um and they um their problems have all desisted when they've stopped and their vision has not been impaired 
permanently. Yeah. Uh, and the um, the researchers have studied the um, the brands of the poppers that the that these patients have used, and they've found that um, uh, it's it's propyl nitrite, which is the substance which is slightly more correlated with those problems in the favelas in the eyes but um but basically there's small numbers of people and it's certainly nowhere near some kind of um you know full double blind study or anything like that with a thousand people accounting for all these other factors now i'm not saying that this study is bullshit i'm just saying that like it's really really small and you shouldn't we can't really base any um uh, any very very much on on a, on a small study like that um and you know so i absolutely think that there should be more research and if and you know the thing is that they're in this weird legal um you know position and so because they're not a regulated product it's hard to do studies and some people don't want to do this and don't want the studies to be done well and this goes back so, also to the whole thing about who's using it right because yeah it's a substance that you could go into the pharmacy easily just like paracetamol buy it then people yeah. start to figure out, oh, it's gays. It's gays that are buying it. Oh, yeah. we don't like that. It yeah. seems to be the that is the main driving factor behind a lot of that. And then also the legislation that would come about later to, I don't know, insist that it be called room motorizer or VHS yeah. head cleaner, et cetera. I get asked this a, a fair about, you know, like, is it homophobic that um, poppers are not legal fully and sold along macaroni cheese in the supermarket? <laughs> And um, I mean, actually, they could be, they could be sold there. To be honest, yeah. With well, you. paracetamol is right, um, and so I think there's a lot of cultural and social regulation of poppers. That's that seems to be the pact between the state, manufacturers, and users that um, this is not a legally fully controlled substance. Um, it, apart from it, cannot be sold for human consumption. Uh, that's why the labels are room odorizer or aroma. Um, uh, and it often says not for human consumption. So that's how they're controlled. But other than that, it's a laissez-faire approach. And so um, some people say like, oh, well, isn't it homophobic that this is not like a product that's like fully out there in the open and available. Um, and I think that there might be some squeamishness about the, the gay sex on behalf of on uh, like lawmakers or whatever who would otherwise not want to like campaign for a, a law or introduce a bill that legalizes poppers fully there might be some squeamishness about like talking about that or, or bringing that in but i also think to be honest with you that both like civil servants and public officials who work in health departments and things like that um they know generally that this is a incredibly um like low harm like substance and actually that it's in no one's interest really to like fully legalize um and actually that um and i think that manufacturers don't really want to like push for that because they don't want the extra scrutiny and some people who use it don't want the extra scrutiny of there being this hot like six month moment where we're all as a society debating like whether this is you know like a decent thing or not the fact is you can get it if you want it well and also it probably adds to the uh cultural cachet of it i do think that's true i do think it's a fun thing that and i think that i think a lot of gays or a lot of queer people feel a sense of ownership over this thing and it they might not want greater um awareness or visibility of it it's like a fun thing that we have and that's very heavily linked to our culture 
as I've just written a book about. And so um, I think we feel a sense of ownership about it. And in the UK and the US, at least, you can get hold of it and Canada and Australia and other places. Oh, you can get it all over the place. There's a smoke shop down the street from me that has the poppers fridge that at one point was on the sales floor. It was right next. It was like, you know, the impulse buy thing, like the uh, candy bars at the supermarket. But uh, then there's another shop on Santa Monica Boulevard, the pleasure chest that's been around for forever. They have everything you want in any kind of fashion. But you can't say the word poppers. Yeah, exactly. And you can't, I mean, there aren't those, those shops in Canada are not selling it in that way because there is a ban in Canada, you know, but you can still, you can still get it. But, um, and certainly that's the case in other countries and generally like countries that are not like rich and in the West, um, you know, there is basically an outright ban. So it's not for sale. You know, there's not, there's very few countries in the world where you can walk into a shop and buy it like you can in the UK and the US, put it that way. You mentioned the the popper baiter videos before, yeah. and though people might be very aware of them, would you give a little description of what those are and um, how they can be enjoyed? Well, popper baiter videos are, well, popper baiter trainer videos are a amazing subgenre of porn, uh, of online porn, and you know, it's we wouldn't, it's it's very, it feels so much to me like it's one of those products, one of those cultural products that we have that would not exist were it not for the internet. Um, and basically, and, and how people consume stuff on the internet and also how we've trained our brains to think about porn and watch porn. You know, if we hadn't done that, then we wouldn't have made these things, which are basically um, massive supercuts of, uh, of, of porn where you've got like, maybe for a 20 minute video, you've got like hundreds and hundreds of clips of short clips of different, from different takes, taken from different other porn videos. Uh, and um, there's probably a techno beat that's been um, also illegally ripped and put <laughs> under um, the, the 20 minute pop beta trainer video. And the maker has also um, either put their own voice or someone else's voice or words on the screen to tell you when to sniff your poppers as you're watching this video. So you see a gradual sequence of porn clips and they might follow the usual storyline of porn videos where mm-hmm. it starts with like touching and petting. So like clip, lots of clips to do with that and then moves on to like kissing and sucking and then moving on to fucking. Uh, and so, and, and through that, they will um, make you stop watching and sniff your poppers um, and maybe hold your breath and then release. Yeah. And so the maker of these popper beta trainer videos is kind of like, it's like an endurance trial that they're training you into being a faggot, I guess, um, making <laughs> you watch these videos, uh, training you to do that and, and making you sniff poppers. And they're also dominating you through their edits and through their instructions. And so that was just another part of popper's culture that, is very like now that I just really wanted to explore in the book because I I am part of that subculture. I really I I I'm, I, I like that. It's fun and it's sexy to me. And um and I just thought it was interesting to think about what they were doing. You know what these these, these videos are doing and how they're operating and what part of our sexuality are they tapping into and how are they using poppers to do that and so these videos are shared online and you know they've been kicked off Pornhub like lots of things because of the great purge of Pornhub that's happened over the past couple of months yeah I know I was looking for I was trying to show someone a femdom poppers uh, instructional video similar to that but more you know with the dom of note 
yelling yeah. at at you or telling you to sniff yeah. and all that stuff and then using echo effects and all this stuff because yeah, we were talking about yeah. popper's porn and i couldn't find it and i was like wait what's yeah. going on here and then yeah. i realized that there was a bit of a a washing yeah i mean they're obviously like breaking like all sorts of copyright laws because they're they are diy mixtape videos so mm. they're people that are using material which is which they don't own the rights for yeah and, um, there's, and there's none but, of that going on on pornhub right Right. Yeah. Um, so you tend to get them. You, you you can still find them, although they are harder um, on other tube sites. And I'm um, sure Reddit as well. Like if you look up Popper's stuff and on, on Reddit. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And there are and there are sheet. You know, there are spreadsheets of um, links that people share around that collect them. But then obviously sometimes those links go. Um, they get deleted. The videos get deleted. People chase videos around onto different tube sites. That kind of stuff. You can spend a lot of time looking into this and following following these videos around the internet. Well, since we only have a few minutes, so let's talk about how much time it took you to put this book together. Well, it's um, it actually, the, the main writing of it, I was working on it for about two days a week for six months. Um, and, but that was already after I had done some degree of work um, prior to that, because I actually started as a talk that I gave. So I did a bit of research um, for a talk and wrote a half an hour talk that I gave at uh, Fringe Queer Film and Arts Fest, which is a queer film and arts fest that we have in, in London in every November. And I'm part of the, the um, collective that organises that. And I gave this talk at that at the festival in 2019. And some people came up to me and said, like, oh, my God, you should write a book, you know, after this talk. And I was like, well, that's a 5,000 word talk, you know, a book's <laughs> like a lot longer than that. Yeah. Um, and but I kind of it's still I still kept it in my mind and I'd done some research obviously and there was plenty of stuff that I hadn't used and plenty of leads that I hadn't gone down and things that I wanted to look at so because of the pandemic and because of what that meant for other bits of work that I was doing or not now going to be doing I just put together a book proposal and sent it to a publisher that I knew were fairly open to book proposals generally and might be interested in a in a little wank book about poppers <laughs> and they um they said yes they commissioned it so then I um said right well okay I'll just spend two days a week working on this um for the next six months and I you know we set quite a tight deadline on it because I wanted to get it done and and um and the advance wasn't very much <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so it was quite a big investment from me anyway and uh, so yeah so I wrote it kind of from like June 2000 June 2020 to December 2020 and then January and February we you know we worked on editing it a bit and then yeah, it takes ages before it comes out, but came out in September. Yeah, well, congratulations on it. It's a great read, especially for anyone who has even a passing curiosity in Poppers, the history of Poppers, or um, any related activities that go along with right. Poppers. It's been lovely chatting with you, Adam. It's been great to chat, Craig. Thanks very much for having me. Here's an excerpt from my chat with Stephen Trask, which was conducted for the Hedvig and the Angry Inch Movie Club, which is going up in multi-part, full-length episodes on Patreon this month. And not just anywhere on Patreon, where? On patreon.com slash Craig and Friends. What's the way to manage excitement at this point? Because clearly you have a hot property on your hands, and it's not just a hot property. It's something that you and John have developed over a period of years. It's dear to your heart. But then you're now meeting with a bunch of different companies. Where's your head at? Oh, I was a mess. You know, you go perform every night and that's exhausting. And then you take these meetings in the daytime and 
you know, I, I I think I was emotionally and like psychologically a mess going in to the project for, for a lot for a lot of reasons. No, no, going into the Grand Street Theater. I see. When we finally finished the show and um and 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 started performing for audiences there i was like a wreck i think i like for the first three weeks i cried every night we performed midnight radio wow now could you attribute that to anything specifically or would it be a confluence of factors it was a confluence of factors but that was a very emotional song for me to write and um and it came from a very particular uh um you know it was just it's a very personal song for me and um and you know because it deals with like it deals both with like the power of music and the importance of music um um you know, it opens with this image that nobody gets. So I don't know why nobody gets it because it seems, seems really clear to me. But like, you know, those rainstorms in New York where like, it's like five o'clock and it's really hot. And all of a sudden, like the rain just starts pouring down and everything is just like you're running and your umbrellas are breaking because the rain is coming down so hard. And then like 10 minutes later, the sun is out and the rain dries up and it was like, and it, and everyone just goes back to, you know, walking around and doing their shit. Yeah. And and I was thinking about like that and the way like when a song comes on that like you're you're listening to music and a song comes on that hits you so hard you're just like oh my god then the song is over but like while it's playing it's just like it is it is your world it is your universe it changes how everything feels right and then three three and a half minutes later. It's gone. And um, and so that was like the opening image. And then like, you know, and then it kind of end like for me, it ended with this idea of different people have this really in my mind, different people that have this relationship to music that's that important in their lives, either as as creative people or that uh, like creating music or other people that create stuff. Who, for whom it's that important, who either find a way to make a living at it or who don't, but somehow continue to do it anyway mm-hmm. and just keep making their art or keep having that, uh, you know, despite not having the world say good job and um, or, y- you know, um, people who maybe they're not artists, but they live that rock and roll lifestyle for like, you know, like you know they're in love with the Janie jones world and they just they just want it right and they just like like and they live that life till till they just can't go into a club anymore like they're just a part of it and and i was trying to figure out you know going into that show i was trying to figure out like where am i going to be in this because if this show doesn't end up happening i didn't know what i was going to do with my life and what role music would have in my life and when you and say you didn't uh, know if the show was going to happen, and I, this might be something that's common knowledge that I'm forgetting, but is this when moving to the Jane Street Theater, you mean like this might not go 
It was actually before that we had a we had a deal at the Cherry Lane Theater to go the previous summer or previous fall, and over the summer in August, at the last minute, it just fell through. I mean, fell through is probably like a funny way to put it. The, the, the Cherry Lane Theater. One of our producers who's a crook. One of our producers of the of the Jane Street show is a crook, and um, 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 she also worked for the Cherry Lane Theater. And um, they didn't know how to get rid of her, and so they more or less closed the theater and reformed as a slightly different corporation a, a, a short time later, but without her. <laughs> like, wow. like they couldn't. They couldn't figure out how to get out of her contract, so they just went out of business for a period of time, and then <laughs> <laughs> that's remarkable. She's, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah. she's the sort of person that would make you do such things. And, Some people um, inspire you in ways you'd never expect. She she was involved later in a weird theater crime. My deal, my band also had a, a speculative record deal with a major label, and they they turned they had an option deal and they turned us down and um this all happened like in a five-day period but in any case i was just like what's what the fuck is going to happen in my life the play is dead that my band is dead all this is dead so i gave myself and, and and michael started teaching at yale that year and i said well if at the end of his second semester something isn't happening with one of these two projects i'm out so for me like i was really on like a timeline Am I going to be, uh, am I going to be like a professional musician and writer for the rest of my life, or am I actually going to do something else? Especially tough decision as well, because not just because of the quality of the material that you make and always make, but that you were this close, legitimately this close to it all happening. So I'm guessing this is what informed the mental state. Yeah. And so then we, and then we like, you know, we did, we went on this like search for a theater that would have us. Nobody would have us. And so our producer slash director, Peter Askin, ended up building the Jane Street Theater in this derelict ballroom at the Hotel Riverview. And that's where we ran. But we didn't, that was pretty late in the, in the fall that, that we decided that we were going to be going there. And I still hadn't written the suite of songs for the end of the show just as we were getting ready to go into the theater for tech, you know, we, and we ended the show with, with um, Joe Brooks as you light up my life, but in German. And he opposed to that. Cause he's such a clean living guy. Standing, <laughs> you know, race rapists. Yeah, and, exactly. Um, Anyone not knowing what we're talking about, go look it up and have a really horrifying afternoon. I think, I think, I think to call him a, rapist is inappropriate because he was really a serial rapist yes i think so i think you're underplaying it a little bit so, but in any case um he said no but we, we were like we were loading in the next week right right like it was not like it wasn't like three weeks ahead of whatever it was like we we're just wrapping shit up and getting ready to go in and so i had to kind of like in addition to like just artistically reaching inside i had to reach inside emotionally and I didn't like, 
I didn't have time to process all of like first of all, just doing that sort of thing is just a very emotional thing, but I didn't have time to process what it all meant to me. Right. So yeah. which I did on stage every night. So then we play it and I was just like, I'm playing it and I'm just crying my eyes out every night. So I was just a, you know, just an, I was a wreck. I was a wreck. Um, and um, so, but that's all behind me now. In terms of uh, chordal complexity, what would you say is the most quote unquote difficult song in the film? Difficult. Uh, oh, absolutely. By the way, I haven't done this in, like, I haven't played this in so fucking long. I don't actually remember it all. So where I was, where... To hear the rest of my nearly two-hour chat with Stephen, head on over to patreon.com slash craigandfriends.